Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 65, The Spring of Salvation. On the first days of spring, 538 BCE, the world radically changed. In an instant. The Hebrews were told they were no longer captive in Babylonia and were free to go. Seven days later, they received back the holy artifacts from their holy temple. And then they set out on the journey known as the return to Zion. The single greatest moment in Hebrew history. At the very least, one of the greatest moments in Hebrew history. So it begs the question, why did the Hebrews never officially commemorate this glorious moment? Because there is no Hebrew holiday that officially celebrates this return. How is that possible? According to the Hebrews who experienced the first days of spring, 538 BCE, this was a moment of salvation. Actual salvation. 42,000 Hebrews returned and thousands more joined them in the ensuing decades. And all were led by priests, who are exactly the people with the authority and the inclination to establish religious traditions that commemorate glorious events. And yet, there is no the return to Zion holiday. And that is because this holiday has a different name. It's called Passover. Passover. Passover commemorates this very return even though officially it celebrates another return to Zion, not from Babylonia, but from Egypt. The stand-in. The exodus from Egypt is a stand-in to the return to Zion. This was how the Hebrews turned their experiences in the spring of 538 BCE into a pan-Hebrew holiday still celebrated today. And in this episode, we will visit the original celebrations of Passover, the joyous spring days that would give birth to Passover, as the Hebrews set out on their return. But before they did that, there was a contract they needed to sign the priests put forth a new covenant to commemorate this glorious moment. A covenant that would bind the Hebrews to Yahweh and to his priests. A covenant that would slowly eat away at the relationship between the Hebrews and their priests until it all ended with death, destruction, doom, genocide, and ethnic cleansing. And the first steps towards this bleak future, still centuries away, was the signing of the Passover 
covenant. These are the first rules of Passover. We have to talk about the first rules of Passover. Let's dive in. I want to thank the members of the tribe for sponsoring this episode. I appreciate it. Hi everybody, this is Gil, thank you for listening. We have many cool things to talk about in this episode. And our focus will be on stories, rules and poems that are related to Passover, that have been written and published right at the beginning of spring. 538 BCE. I think that once we get the full picture and then go over the texts in Hebrew, we will actually be able to point out to specific days some of these were written. It's kind of wild, but that's where the facts will take us. This entire episode will be about the first seven days of spring 538 BCE. We have a loose end to tie up, and this loose end is uh, flat and it's made of barley. Hmm? We have one more question left to answer about the origin of the tradition of the barley chapati of Passover, also known as the matzah. We learned that the matzah started as a good juju tradition that was about eating nothing but bread made of fresh spring crops, cropped after the first day of spring, 538 BCE. And in the first days of spring, every year, you cropped barley. And barley doesn't leaven. And we learned that the elements of haste were added to the matzah later, But we don't know if there was always some haste in it from the very beginning, because maybe the 42,000 Hebrews were in haste to leave Babylonia. And then the matzah was always related to haste. Thankfully, we have a first-hand account in the Bible that documents these specific days, and will answer many of our questions about Passover and these seven days. This is a poem that can be found in Isaiah 52. And we'll also rely a little bit on historical accounts in the Bible. And all of these different kinds of texts will complement the overall picture. It doesn't matter if it's a poem, a historical account, a story, or some rules. Each one of them gives us a different perspective on these same seven days. So, we have the haste, and then we also have the pillars of cloud and fire. That's very iconic in Hebrew. Amud Esh and Amud Anan. And you can go online and check how the pillar of cloud was recently used or misused. So we will learn what these pillars are all about. 
and then we'll get to the first rule of Passover. It reads like a contract, and as contracts go, I have a feeling the Hebrews did not have their lawyers with them to lay out what it is that they are signing and what are the ramifications. 42,000 Hebrews, not a single lawyer. The Hebrews were clearly impaired, drunk on euphoria. Their capacity to make rational decisions was obviously affected by high doses of dopamine released into their brains in the first days of spring 538 BCE. And this is a lesson for all of us. When you feel like you've achieved salvation, that's not a good time to sign a contract that would bind your descendants forever and ever. And the first rule of Passover is what connects this spring to the second spring of Passover, which would bring the downfall of the priests. The very priests who began with the celebrations of Passover. So that's what we have on our plate for this episode. So let's start immersing ourselves in the first days of spring, 538 BCE. And there is no better way to immerse ourselves in these joyous seven days than going over the poem in Isaiah chapter 52. This fantastic poem actually describes how the news, the news of freedom, spread around the Hebrew towns. It describes their joy and their preparations to Exodus Babylonia and the beginning of the Exodus itself. And once we go over this poem, it will provide us with many answers about the story of Passover and about the reality behind it. Okay, so what is our poem in Isaiah 52 about? Scholars agree that this was written in Persian times and it talks of the return to Zion and that's the return from Babylonia. It describes it as salvation and compares it directly to the exodus from Egypt. The whole shebang. It's all here. In Isaiah 52. How about that? So it echoes what we discussed in the previous episodes. How the Hebrews were set free not for a price or reward. Right? I called it an act of kindness. So here in English it's called redeemed. The Hebrews were redeemed. But in Hebrew it's nig'elu meaning they achieved salvation, they were salvated. In Hebrew there is such a word. So this is salvation, and it's also called salvation Yeshua. That's another word for salvation. So Yeshua, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus, meaning salvated. 
Today we use the name Yeshu for short. This poem doesn't talk of freedom. It talks of salvation. So let me read this part and listen carefully. Because this very day is the day that the Seder dinner, the Seder Passover dinner, commemorates. This very day, the first day of spring, 538 BCE. The joy that they felt. Let me read. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. This is an ode to the beautiful feet who brought the news of salvation. Wow. So how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. The one who publishes peace who brings good tidings, who proclaims salvation. So on the first day of spring, 538 BCE, salvation was proclaimed. Salvation. If you've been waiting for salvation, it's already happened 2,500 years ago. And imagine you're the guy who let everybody know that salvation came. Wow, 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 wow. To be the bearer of such good news. There were surely a billion amazing stories about these very days. But we have just this one. So let me continue. Listen. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. From eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break forth together into singing. After breaking forth into singing, the Hebrews get ready to exodus from Babylonia. Literally, they're told tsu, meaning exit. And ex in Exodus means exit. In Hebrew, the Exodus is called Yetziat Mitzrayim, the exit from Egypt. So here the text clearly says the Hebrews are exiting Babylonia. And in Egypt, they are also exiting. Eight times the root exit appears in our two Passover chapters. Okay, so let's get back to our poem. When the Hebrews are getting ready to exit. I'll translate exit as get out of here. It flows better. Let me read. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Beware of bad juju. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves of bad juju. You who bear the vessels of Yahweh. That's the holy artifacts the Babylonian had stolen and the Persians gave back exactly for this return. 
And now comes the day that the second holy day of Passover commemorates. The very day they set out of Babylonia. So does the poem say if they left in haste or not? <laughs> Let's read. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. כי לא בחיפזון תצאו, ובמנוסה לא תלכון. And then, For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. כי הולך לפניכם יהוה, ומאספכם אלוהי ישראל. They don't need to run, they don't need to fly, they have Yahweh. On their side. And they are making a point, specifically, deliberately, of not leaving Babylonia in haste. Do not go in haste, they say. It's a matter of pride and dignity. They want to walk out as free people. And they didn't want to take with them any food. From the pre-salvation times, the nightmare they had just awakened from. So the original reasoning for the Matzah was not because they were preparing it in haste. The barley chapati of our ancestors was prepared with good juju food from the spring of salvation. And the Hebrews departed Babylonia, and they all must have sung along the way for hours on end. But before they did that, there was a contract they needed to sign. Which brings us to the first rule of Passover. We have to talk about the first rule of Passover. On the seventh day of spring, 538 BCE, the Hebrews were read these exact rules. Not all 42,000 of the Hebrews attended, of course, but we have the names of the heads of the families, and we also have the name of the head priest, a guy called Yeshua, as in Jesus. Salvated Yeshua, that's his name. In the English translations, his name is not Jesus, nor is it Salvated, it's Joshua. But no, that's not the name. Yehoshua is Joshua. This guy is called Jesus, Yeshua. So this Yeshua comes into the picture at the moment of salvation, okay? <laughs> he is the head priest at that time. And he was the head priest when the Jerusalem temple was rebuilt. So who but the high priest Yeshua would write up the priestly covenant? 
He was the high priest throughout that time. Yeshua. So we have a new biblical author on our hands because no other person but the high priest Yeshua could be in charge of this priestly covenant and its priestly rules. Welcome to the podcast, Yeshua the High Priest. So this covenant appears in Exodus chapters 12 and 13, mostly 13. And if you go over this chapter in your Bibles, you will find a lot of Maccabean additions with a violent exodus. Because they were violent. That's a late addition. We're ignoring that. So the covenant is phrased like a contract between the people and Yahweh. And the priests get the spoils. For Yahweh. They're getting the spoils for Yahweh, of course. So the contract lays out what each side owes the other and in what order. Step one, Yahweh has to deliver the Hebrews safely to the land he promised them and he has to give it to them. Meaning, now that they're going back to their ancestral homeland, who knows who's living there now? The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, maybe the Yebusites. Who knows if they'll be happy to see them after 49 years. So Yahweh has to take care of all of that. And the end result has to be that they have their ancestral homeland. They live on it. They're there. Everything's fine. This is what Yahweh owes the Hebrews, and he has to deliver first. He promises them their land. That's step one. And if step one is complete, then every spring, the firstborn of the Hebrews belong to Yahweh. And if you wish to redeem them, which you would, then you have to give to the priests of Yahweh your firstborn animals. That's what the Hebrews will owe to the priests if Yahweh delivers them safely to their ancestral homeland and they can live there. If that happens, every spring 42,000 Hebrews have to give their firstborn cattle to the priests of Jerusalem and also give them some money while you're at it. The key to understanding this covenant is the specific Hebrew phrasing. It is phrased in the conditional. If Yahweh does that, then you give the priests this. In English, for some reason, this was translated as when Yahweh gives you your land. But in Hebrew, is lawyer speak for if Yahweh brings you if that comes to be it's conditional it hasn't happened yet and the result is not yet assured 
okay? So now that we have the entire context and the way this contract is phrased in such a specific way that the only time it could have been made public was on the seventh day of spring, 538 BCE. As a contract agreed to ahead of time, because it was better for the priests, obviously, to have the Hebrews agree to it now, when they're so happy and clueless. And who knows what things will be like once we get there. No, no, no. Get them to sign now. So do you remember that I said how unrealistic it is that the Hebrews, before they leave Egypt, they already plan ahead of time how they're going to celebrate this very moment, right? I called it putting the carriage before the horse, opening the champagne and so on. And I said that that is not how people celebrate anything. So I was half right here. They didn't plan the parade ahead of time. They planned the taxes, the priestly taxes ahead of time. Hmm. Let me start in Hebrew. Hayom atem yotzim bechodesh ha'aviv. Today you are exiting in the month of spring, in the month of Aviv. This is present tense. Hayom atem yotzim. You are now exiting. This is happening now. This is read to them as they are about to exit. Unbelievable. We can trace these rules to a specific day. The seventh day of spring, 538 BCE. That's when this was read aloud to the Hebrews. Wow. Okay, okay, let's go over the deal. Here is the deal in Hebrew. Vehaya ki avecha Yahweh, eleret aknani, vahiti, vahemori, vahivi, vahevusi, ashenishbala votecha ratetlecha, eret zavat hala vudvash, vahavadeta avoda azot, bachodeshaze. Vehevata kol peter rechem le Yahweh. וכל פטר שגר ואימה, וכל בכור בניי אפדה. So before I read it in English, we need to add one more moniker for the spring of 538 BCE. The spring of milk and honey. This is when that term came to be. The Hebrews were euphoric, and they saw... Their little wasteland, as a land of milk and honey. Ah, oh, how sweet. <laughs> so let me read, but I'm not reading it as when, but as if. So this was read aloud by Yeshua to the heads of families, right before they set out of Babylonia. Today, you are exiting in the month of spring. If Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Ebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, 
a land flowing with milk and honey, sure, then you should worship Yahweh this way in this month. Meaning from here on out, forever and ever, right? <laughs> Perpetual contract. Let's keep going, then it repeats itself. And if Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart for Yahweh all your firstborn, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. And then it goes into detail of what kinds of animals, and then there is a statement by the Hebrews, I'm guessing by the heads of families, their statement is in the contract. It's in the first person. This is why I sacrificed to Yahweh all the firstborn male in spring, and thus I redeem my firstborn. This is the deal. Starting the following spring, and for centuries after that, every spring, the Hebrews would be forced by this covenant to bring their firstborn cattle to the priests of Jerusalem. And it's not talking about firstborn for no reason. Because spring is the time of rebirth in the whole of nature, including animals. Spring is when the firstborn cattle are born. So the first one, you have to give that one to the priests. This contract is like proto-feudalism or proto-vassalage. The Hebrews are the general public, the people, and they owe taxes to their lords. And in return, their lords extend their protection to the people. And the priest will make sure that Yahweh protects you along the way, gives you your land, and they will make sure that you are protected from Yahweh's anger if you follow the rules, if you give them cattle, and also some money. And gradually and inevitably, the money flows from the people to the lords, and the lords buy up more and more lands, and gradually the people just work on these lands for their lords. So the first rule of Passover meant that the priests would slowly amass power and assets and wealth and become Hebrew lords. The first rule of Passover created the priestly caste. And this is how the first rules of Passover agreed to on the day of the return to Zion. This is how they connect us to the civil war that would topple these priests, these very priests. We know that this specific rule, that you had to bring over your firstborn lamb to Jerusalem, 
That's what made the priests more and more powerful. And that once the priests were toppled, it would be illegal to follow the first rule of Passover and give your firstborn lambs to the priest of Jerusalem? No. You sacrifice your firstborn lamb yourself where you live. And you had to prove it by marking your doorframe with the sacrificial blood. So this would be a direct reaction to the first rule of Passover that says that you give your firstborn lamb to the priests. And they sacrifice it for you where Yahweh dwells, in the Jerusalem temple. So it was at the highest peak of Hebrew euphoria, at the veritable moment of salvation. That's when the seeds of doom were planted. So before the Hebrews leave Egypt, Exodus says their neighbors slash friends give them gold and silver. It's called re'im. That's the Hebrew word. So love thy neighbor is love thy re'ah. Ve'ahavta l're'acha kamocha. So the Egyptians are suddenly described right before the Exodus, not as enemies, but as friendly, lovely, supporting neighbors who give them gold and silver. Later, the Maccabees turn this sweet part into the Hebrews, taking advantage of the foreigners. But I think those are late additions, and this too commemorates the days before the return to Zion. Because we have historical accounts in the Bible that tell us that the Hebrews left Babylonia specifically with gold and silver they received out of love and support from their neighbors. I think the neighbors are friendly in this part in Exodus because the neighbors were friendly when the Hebrews departed Babylonia. So as the 42,000 Hebrews are getting ready to set out, they are told, you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. Yahweh will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Yahweh and the God of Israel will guard you. This is a marriage, the official marriage between Yahweh, and the official title of God of Israel. There were a lot of arguments up to that time. Who is the God of the Hebrews and what is his name? And this covenant says, we will have no more discussions from here on out on who is our God, right? This is Yahweh, okay? And the only officially licensed Hebrew priests are the priests of Yahweh. 
sign on the dotted line. So that's one thing that pops out to me with Yahweh and the God of Israel guarding them. The second thing that pops out is that the clock has started ticking on the protection services of Yahweh. He started protecting them right here. They need to get safely to their ancestral homeland, so he protects them. That's Yahweh's part of the deal. And Yahweh going before you and after you sounds very similar to the two pillars of Yahweh that protected the Hebrews when they exodused from Egypt. And I think I know what the pillars mean. We discussed that the contract guaranteed that the firstborn of the livestock would be given to the Jerusalem priests. And the Jerusalem priests will sacrifice those animals and then burn them as part of the ritual. And if you looked at the temple and then you looked up a little bit, what you would see is a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you looked at the temple by day, you would see a column, a pillar of smoke rising from the dedicated area for the sacrifices and the ritualistic burning. A column of thick, black, cloud-like smoke. Whenever you looked at the temple, that's what you saw. So this was written by a priest, because it highlights the role of the priests in the protection handed down by Yahweh to the people. The sacrifices we perform for you, with your animals, that's how you will be protected, by day and by night. Speaking of night, if you looked at the temple by night, you would see the flames within the column, the pillar of smoke. Because when it's all dark, you can see the fire inside the smoke. And traditionally, it was viewed that the smoke coming out from the sacrificial altar, the smoke that would rise into the clouds, would reach the God above. You communicate with your God by sacrificing animals for him. And the priests, they do the communicating for you. They send your gifts with a pillar of smoke that reaches God. I think the pillar of cloud is a pillar of smoke. And the pillar of fire is a pillar of smoke with fire. And I think it's a priestly image of the covenant and Yahweh protecting them. Okay? So let's read this part. I'll read it first in Hebrew. ויהוה הולך לפניהם יומם בעמוד ענן לנוחותם הדרך ולילה בעמוד אש להאיר להם ללכת. לא ימיש עמוד הענן יומם ועמוד האש לילה לפני העם. 
Now I'll read it in English. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of smoke to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. And as long as the people provided lambs and the priests kept the sacrifices going, the covenant was upheld. Symbolized by the iconic image for everybody in Judea of the constant pillar coming out of the Jerusalem temple. The Hebrews set out of Babylonia with the holy artifacts of their holy temple, and the priests were fantasizing about rebuilding this temple so that Yahweh could dwell in it again, with the middlemen being the priests. Give them your cattle and your money. So, as far as I can tell, we went over all of the elements of Passover from Persian times. It was first celebrated on the first day of spring, 538 BCE. I would say that wherever you find in the Bible a euphorically joyous text, it's from around that time. This moment in time is ground zero for much of the Bible and for part of its theology. And come to think of it, the first day of spring, 538 BCE, wasn't the time when Passover was first celebrated. That only came a year later, right? That was the first festival to celebrate the first day of spring, 538 BCE. So the first Passover celebration, ceremony, whatever it looked like, that came in the first day of spring, 537 BCE. And they commemorated the day they received the news carried by beautiful feet with the sweet words of Yahweh, salvation. And from my reading of the rules, the strict prohibitions on yeast and the threat of excommunication, that came later. That can't come right before the return. I think that might have developed as the custom in Persia for those who stayed. And then 100 years later, Ezra brought those rules to Judea, and he was shocked that nobody followed these strict rules. So at first the matzah de chapati was meant to be about good juju, not eating pre-salvation things. And later the barley chapati became mandatory. And the second holiday of Passover, the seventh and final day of the festival, that commemorates 
both the return to Zion and the signing of the new covenant with Yahweh. The Yahweh who brought over this Cyrus fellow made him king of Persia, opened the gates of Babylon to him, millions of people affected, all that, so he could return 42,000 Hebrews to their ancestral homeland. So communicating with Yahweh, you know, there's a monetary value you can add to that. Now, don't you be stingy with the God who salvated you. So, you know, we spoke about how Yahweh bragged that Cyrus delivered salvation not for a price or reward. Okay, what's good for the gander is not good for the Yahweh, because Yahweh does have a price or reward. He wants you to give your firstborn cattle to the priests. At some point, Yahweh became the only Hebrew God. And at some point was the first day of spring, 538 BCE, the spring of Yahweh. And attributing this miracle, this salvation to Yahweh, goes beyond just the inability to understand it without divine intervention. First of all, there was numerical evidence that this was a divine act. Numerological evidence. Cyrus announced freedom in his first year on the throne. He didn't know it, but he announced freedom on the most auspicious of years. 49 years after the temple of Yahweh was destroyed. And this is clearly proof of a divine act, specifically by the Persians and specifically for the Hebrews. What am I talking about? For the Persians, the number seven held a holy significance. It was a perfectly harmonious and divine number, a godly number. And thus, the most auspicious of numbers was seven times seven, 49. For the Persians, you can't get any better than 49. So as luck would have it, or as Yahweh would have it, The temple was destroyed in 587 BCE and freedom came in 538 BCE. And the priests crunched the numbers and it came out as 49 years. Who cares about 49 years? The Persians care. Who brought us freedom? The Persians. What does that mean? Yahweh sent the Persians to save us. And the magical number of 49 was later inserted into other biblical stories written later, as in Daniel. So I think that's one reason 
the priests had a way of pointing specifically to Yahweh as being responsible for this. It also helped that the priests of Yahweh were organized and could mobilize quickly. But that's not all of it. The priests had written evidence that Yahweh said ahead of time that they would be freed and allowed to return at this time. Yahweh called it and they had proof. And the proof can be found in the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Yirmiyahu. Do you remember what Jeremiah said to the Hebrews? He warned them that they would spend a very, very, very long time in captivity. A very, very long time is 40 years. So what did Jeremiah say? He said the Hebrews would die and be sent to exile and only return after 40 years. And 49 years later, his prophecy sent shockwaves throughout the Hebrews. Yahweh is our God, and he spoke to Jeremiah. And from this day forth, let no Hebrew ever question again the awesome power of our Savior, our one and only God, ruler of the universe. For the past two years, we have encountered countless similarities or identicalities between the captivity in Egypt, as described in Exodus, and the real captivity in Babylonia. We see it as a trick, but it was actually just a common knowledge type thing. Every single person who grew up on these stories in Babylonia knew that Egypt was Babylonia. And it goes beyond the book of Exodus. We have poems and psalms crisscrossing between the real return and the fiction of Exodus. So this is all a process that involves a lot of people through a long time. I attributed up to now all the priestly texts to Ezra the priest from the 400s BC, but clearly that's not the case. We have priestly writers and poets starting from 538 BCE all the way to the time of Ezra. We have way more biblical authors than we thought we did. And today we met two new biblical authors. It's very cool, very cool. I'm so happy that there are more people writing and it's not just a small group. We've met Yeshua, the high priest. Yeshua, who brought them salvation, who sealed the new covenant on the seventh day of spring, 538 BCE. And he was the co-leader of the expedition back home. And I would venture that he wrote much of the rules 
for the upcoming holidays in Exodus. So we haven't seen the last of him. The second new biblical author was the poet behind Isaiah 52, the friendly neighbors giving gold and silver, and the pillars of smoke and fire. He's a poet priest. So let's call him our poet priest. He's joyous and fun. I think that maybe, maybe, he might be the priestly writer behind the Persian remake of the plagues. I said it was Ezra, but also we found humor and lightheartedness that didn't fit Ezra. So maybe it's our joyous priestly poet. Maybe he's also funny. That's one reason it might be him. Another one is that in the pillar of smoke and fire, he talks about light and darkness. And Yahweh creates light with the pillar of fire. And that sounds Zoroastrian. That's the Persian religion, right? And the plagues, if you remember, were very Zoroastrian, including the plague of darkness, where the Hebrews are in light. So maybe he's into incorporating Zoroastrian elements in his stories. And he likes the Persians, because they brought salvation. Maybe. So as you can see, there are many priestly layers, written at different times, starting from the spring of 538 BCE. And what happened after that is that they reached the land of their ancestors, rebuilt their temple. 200 years later, the Hellenists conquered Persia. 100 years after that, the tensions between the Hebrew priests and the masses started to ferment, and then they erupted into a civil war, and the war of independence, which culminated with the toppling of these priests. But the tensions kept on rising, producing more civil wars, until it all ended with death, destruction, genocide, and ethnic cleansing. The covenant didn't hold. Yeshua tried when salvation came. But I guess some Hebrews thought there was a need for a new Yeshua. And a new, new covenant. Okay. So when it was all said and done, in the hindsight of history, this was less a covenant between Yahweh and his people, and more of a ticking time bomb between the Hebrews and their priests. But the fact that the moment that started this time bomb was the very moment of salvation, you couldn't make that shit up. That's tragic. So I updated the list of all our biblical authors that appears on podcastofbiblicalproportions.com. On the top of the page, the menu, click who wrote the Bible. So just go to podcastofbiblicalproportions.com and click who wrote the Bible. And then a few explanations and you scroll down. And there's a nice layout with the stories 
that each of them wrote and what are they like and where and when. Up to now we had six biblical authors. After the Passover episodes, we have ten. I divided them according to the periods. Babylonian times, Persian times, Hellenistic times. So that's on podcast of biblicalproportions.com. So in the next episode, we'll pay another visit to the time when there was a big explosion of this time bomb. The backlash to this covenant. So all this talk about giving your firstborn to Yahweh and to the priests, the firstborn lambs, to redeem your firstborn boy, that gives us another context for the obsession by the Maccabees with firstborn. Hmm? It's in the covenant. So we'll talk about that in the next episode. As you probably noticed, this series went on longer than I initially thought, and it also took longer to prepare than usual. I think it's because I'm not that used to religious rules yet, so it takes a little bit longer. So it messed up my schedule. I'm also taking a much-needed one-week-long vacation. So I'll try to fill the gap with some collaborations, but the episodes themselves will be a bit irregular in the coming weeks. But I do want to let you know what's coming next because I think it's awesome. So we have to complete Passover, that's one. And then I want to talk about all the Jesus elements that we've encountered, and there's so many more. And what happens when you add all of the pieces together. And I think that after that would be a good time to give Exodus a short rest and give Genesis another look. Knowing what we know now about how fiction completes the full image of reality, I think there is a lot more to learn about Jeremiah from the stories in Genesis, and that will give us the context to many of the stories, stories that we haven't discussed in the summary episodes of Genesis. That's very, very cool, and I'd like to dedicate an episode, maybe two, to that. Then we have the parting of the Red Sea. So indulge me with patience for the next few weeks. Also, the place that I live in is very unstable at the moment, and that doesn't help. But I'm okay. And last but certainly not least, a second shout out to tribe member Sean for pointing out the 49 element in the Bible and in Daniel specifically. Thanks, Sean. Let's wrap it up. Be sure you're following the podcast so you can get a notification whenever the new episode or, collabor- or collaboration drop. And thank you for listening. And thank you to the dear members of the tribe. We just had another fun tribal meeting the other day. We're on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. So my name is Gil Kidron, and I'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>